Welcome to Blackbird episode number 20. My name is James, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Tessa Lena. Tessa is a musician and writer who first came into my consciousness when I was searching out the great propaganda scholar Mark Crispin Miller's take on The Great Reset. Uh, he didn't have much to say about it other than to link to Tessa's post on that phenomenon. Um, I was taken enough by her post that I subscribed to her newsletter, and I am very glad that I did. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview that comes from a different perspective from what I think a lot of my guests come from, uh, which uh, hopefully you will find as refreshing as I do. And so with that, here is my interview with Tessa Lena. All right, Tessa, thanks for joining me today. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure, James. Sure. Uh, so I first heard about you. Um, I, I was looking into Mark Crispin Miller, who's a great scholar of propaganda and conspiracies um, and that sort of thing. Um, and I wanted to see what he had to say about the Great Reset. And he didn't say much about it other than to read your post on Tessa Fights Robots on your Substack uh, about it. And so I kind of got deep into the rabbit hole of your writings and I wanted to have you on the show. Um, so why don't you being that, you know, I, I, I had never heard of you before this, um, although you've been on a number of other podcasts, I would assume that most of my audience isn't familiar with you. Could you just kind of um, introduce yourself, give kind of a description of who you are and what you do? Oh, absolutely. So humbling. <laughs> Oh, uh, first of all, I, I absolutely adore Mark Kristen Miller. He's just such a brave human being, and I'm honored to call him a friend. And he, I met Mark actually years ago, and it is through him that I got into studying propaganda and media from that angle many, many years ago. And like, he's just an amazing human being. And I'm so glad that the intro came in the way of Mark Kristen Miller. And as far as myself, I am a musician and artist primarily, and also a writer. I am Russian. I was born and raised in Moscow. Then I did many things in life, classical music and singing and Tibetan studies. And I even dabbed in coding when I really needed money years ago, although I ended up not liking it. I loved it, and then I didn't like it. So, and currently... I guess my primary identity is artist, musician, and writer, and I have been involved in artist rights. And through that, I started researching and really getting into what big tech was doing, which is why when last year everything started unfolding in a really weird way, I recognized that everything that I was telling my friends might happen one day in some kind of a twisted, dark, dystopian future. I am sure after my lifetime, so we shouldn't worry about it now. All of a sudden it was happening in my lifetime in front of my eyes and in a very crazy way, which is why like, after thinking and thinking whether I should say something, whether, it should be, you know, whether I should be scared of talking about it, I decided to write that humongously long article about the Great Reset, which was called Great Reset for Dummies. And I really put years of research and thinking and philosophy and art into that, just hoping that somehow it would help those of us who have never heard about this trend 
or about the Great Reset itself, that it would help them wrap their minds around it in a way that was not too spooky and also human. And hopefully it worked because I got a lot of really wonderful and kind feedback about that. And I never looked back because I have gotten outspoken about everything like that is happening and it feels really good to be outspoken about it. Everything about you, um, I'm getting a little emotional just talking about this. I, it just seems that you are the most, the, the only word that comes to mind is holistic. Um, and, and there's, there's so many ironies. So you're, you're, you're Russian and you have a blog and a website called Tessa fights robots. You're like the anti-Russian bot. And, um, <laughs> and you're, you're, you're sensitive and you have a huge heart, the kind of thing that, that I envy in a person because I don't, um, but on the other hand, you are like politically you're, you, you see through the, you see through the, the technocracy, um, without, without being on the right which, which uh, is something that I've, you know, been looking for. Um, how, uh, well, and then, and then come to find out, you know, you also dabbled in coding, which uh, who, who would have thought that an artist, an artist also was for a while a coder. Um, where, where does, where does that, I mean, it almost feels playful, your personality. Does that make sense? Like it, it, well, well, first off, uh, I, I, I thank you. you. Your words are very kind and I'm very touched. I, well, I guess it has always been important to me and in no regard to politics, ever since I was a, like literally a mm -hmm. small child, truth of life has been important to me on some level. And I was that person who would come into a group of people and say something horrible and comfortable without even realizing it was horrible <laughs> and comfortable just because okay. that was, you know, the thing that I was thinking about. And so politics per se does not really interest me, meaning that I have long gotten disappointed in it. I don't think that it is going to help anybody at this juncture of history. I mean, it is a genre, it is a format, and it can harm greatly. But given the fact that essentially job description of a very important politician in today's world requires being a psychopath, and people who do not possess that feature are simply just not getting through. The, the hopes for political solutions are very low in my heart. So, and because I've lived in different societies and I was raised at the ruins of the Soviet Union and I remember the psychological make of the like, proverbial Soviet person and how annoyed I was as a teenager at that, and I couldn't understand. I was thinking, you know, how t teenagers are. Adults are always stupid. So I was thinking, oh, how, how come they don't understand that there's no need to be so miserable, so scared and so dogmatic? And I was annoyed. And that was the reason why I actually moved to the States. I just couldn't deal with that negative, dogmatic attitude somehow. And now I realize that essentially people are traumatized in different ways, people from different generations, people living under different systems, like capitalism, socialism, you name it, but there's different kind of trauma. And most people on the ground really mean well. 
sometimes what they do ends up being completely messed up. But people on the ground usually think that they're doing the right thing. They usually want to choose what's right. They usually want to do something that is kind. However, politicians and high corporate masters, they know how to manipulate human emotions and they do, they do it very successfully. And for that reason, uh, when I'm observing everything right now that is happening, that is a total mess and total distortion and it's really horrible. But at the same time, I kind of see humanity in people, even the people who I completely disagree with, well, unless they're just acting mean and they turn into robots themselves, which is a different story. But most people aren't like that. And for that reason, I have no problem as a human being talking to those who have completely different political beliefs. And I suppose my political beliefs are none at this point. Like historically, most of my crowd have been kind of on the left and I thought I was that, but then I saw that it was a total mess too. And I just disconnected from political talking points altogether. And I don't care right now. I think both parties are corrupt and it's not even worth discussing because, you know, solutions lie elsewhere. And I think solutions really lie in being able to overcome that divide and conquer. Like I have a theory that probably the tool that has been used throughout history by people with not so good intentions and, you know, money and power uh, was to really divide people and divide people across as many lines as possible. And as the little guy, you know, little people keep fighting with each other over whatever, like, you know, the, the heated slogan of the day, that is the time when the higher ups are laughing all the way to the bank. And it's been this way for centuries. So they are trying to do that again. And I see that as a extremely painful opportunity for people to not go for divide and conquer this time around. Like, you know, over, over the centuries, we just given this opportunity again and again. And every time we don't use it, things become very painful. But maybe that's why life keeps giving this opportunity again. I don't know. Does it make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Would, uh, so do you have any... Uh hard hard and fast like dogmatic beliefs or are you religious at all or um where like where are you where are where are you firmly grounded right now uh i tend to at least flatter myself thinking that i don't have dogmatic beliefs <laughs> i don't know i'm sure other people have a better view of that but uh i'm definitely not an atheist i have my own view of Theology, it is not really tied to any like mainstream world religion, but it is maybe more tied to indigenous view. But again, it is my own thing. It, it is very dear to me and it is helping me greatly. But I get along with people of different beliefs. I have, I think that the silliest idea that human beings have ever come up with is to argue about whose definition of God is more righteous. Right. I think, I think it is, you know, people, people usually, you know what I've noticed that any system that human beings have come, come up with, whether it's a religion or particular religion or science with a hashtag or atheism, all of it can be used just to justify whatever crappy thing a human being wants to do. 
and people have employed the name of God and the name of science and the name of progress to, you know, to do harm onto others, essentially. Alternatively, people, people's religious faith obviously can be a source of great strength and courage and something that helps one to stand up in the face of you know, people trying to do horrible things. So I don't think that it's the talking points that define goodness or otherwise. I think it's more the internal and the feeling and the genuine, you know, whatever is in the heart. And then as far as talking points, brain is very clever. I mean, we usually adjust whatever we feel. I mean, whatever we feel to whatever theory that, you know, we can weaponize. So. Um, you mentioned trauma. Uh, I would imagine your life has, I mean, you've probably experienced as much trauma, if not more than the next person, especially having um, grown up in post-Soviet Russia. Were you, were you alive during the Soviet Union as well? I don't know how old you are. I, I, I caught the very tail end. I mean, the Soviet Union was falling apart gradually. I mean, there was a date, but then it kind of lingered. Mm. But I do not, you know, when you're a small child, anything goes, really. I mean, you're not particularly traumatized by any social arrangements just because, like, you live in your world and you think of the world as, like, your parents or your friends. You're probably more worried as a child about what your friend said than mm. anything that, like, anything at all that happens politically or on television. But, uh, which is... Which is to say that I don't think that masking children is a good idea. I think it's a horrible idea. But that's not political. That's, you know, tactile. But uh, I had plenty of trauma. Well, I mean, I had an abusive relationship. And also my husband tried to, he was a lawyer. He was abusive and he tried to get rid of me. And he wanted me deported. So, he, you know, he did extremely dishonest things. And uh, that was pretty bad. But... Up until now, I just thought it was just some extremely painful and unpleasant thing that happened to me, and I had to get over it, and why, oh, why, why did I have to go through that? But last year, I discovered that actually that experience had helped me, like finally it paid off, because having gone through a pretty bad, like genuinely severe abusive relationship, and having gotten out of it by the time when it was like impossible to do anything else because it was area was dangerous so there was no other way other than to like, get out of it and having gone through that and having healed which took me years when i started seeing signs of state abuse i was like uh-uh i'm not going for that like i've seen that and i recognized it really quickly i don't know if it would have been the case have i not gone through that abusive relationship so that I, I will never know, obviously, but I think that it really helped me to be strong and kind of have clarity without even much trying. So I know at some point I had an encounter with a sex trafficker when I was traveling and you know, he beat me up and I survived by miracle. So there was plenty of dramatic experiences in my life in the past, which again, helped me ultimately to have clarity about what's going on right now and not really go for Stockholm syndrome, which I think a lot of people are going for right now, simply because they have been comfortable. They have never thought of themselves as abuse victims, which is kind of healthy. You know, nobody wants to wake up in the morning and, and, and think, oh, 
I'm a victim of abuse. I mean, that's humiliating. And people usually avoid it at all costs, which is what I was doing. And answering your previous question, that is another thing that is helping me to not be particularly dogmatic or judgmental when I deal with people who are absolutely refusing to even admit that this state abuse is happening. Because I know that a human being, it is, it is natural to be in denial of being in a victim, like in a victim seat, because it's just not pleasant. So again, that past experience of trauma and abuse really helped me to both be grounded myself, hopefully, and also to be kind to those who are struggling with it right now, who just refuse to admit to that. Do you think that there is a trend right now where being a victim is seen as sort of a virtue or as a badge of honor? I think so. And actually, you know, I wrote a story, I think in the last story that I posted on my Substack, Classified Troubles. I, uh, I was thinking about this. I think that competition in some way is a healthy i mean that's part of human nature and that's probably part of nature in general and it is possible to compete in a healthy way that is spiritually healthy and uh not twisted and i guess the key to healthy competition is kind of recognizing the spiritual sanctity of other people and their free will and their function and their soul and you can compete, but it's almost like, you know, a game, like a sports game. I mean, you compete, you really do your best to, you know, to win over them. But at the same time, you respect their existential, you know, validity. However, uh, when the internals are broken, competition becomes something else. It becomes hunger driven. And then historically, traditionally in the past, at least, you know, at least since World War II, where the American economy has been doing pretty well, like pretty steadily for the most part. And people had a chance of competing financially, at least in the Western world. But when financial competition is taken out, which is what's happening right now with the economy going down the toilet, kind of, people immediately go into the format of competing in any other area, which is in this case, moral superiority, or victimhood, but, you know, that kind of victimhood that is promoted right now has moral superiority attached to that. And I saw it in the psychology, what I remember in adults, like in Soviet adults, where competing for, nobody had money, essentially. And because nobody had money, it wasn't a huge issue, at least through the eyes of my generation. So it's, like nobody felt humiliated necessarily because having no money, but because people still wanted to compete with each other, they would compete over, you know, who is righteous. And I'm greatly exa- uh, like oversimplifying, obviously it's significantly more nuanced than that. It depends on the person and all that. But I saw that trend and I'm recognizing it now because what used to exist in America is a person can just get a job, any job, not necessarily an important job, and then go through the whole thing of buying a house, you know, like mortgage, like having a car, all those things that were considered like standard. You didn't really have to be particularly entrepreneurial. You could do that, right? Now you can't. Now it's out of the window. It's not an option. So people have to really hustle and work a million jobs and the gig economy is horrible and completely devastating. So the economy is not doing as well. And people naturally have a way of competing elsewhere. In addition to that, however, 
uh, I believe that we're being set up for that victimhood mode because it is kind of similar to the trend of, again, in my view, it is completely subjective, but I think that it is similar to what, say, the Bolshevik marketing was doing. Well, obviously, way before my time, but the Russian Revolution, Bolshevik Revolution happened in 1917. And the slogans that they were using were, you know, bread to the peasants, factory to the workers, you know, food to everybody. So the slogans were very warm and fuzzy. They were very, like, for the people, everything for the people. And they were weaponizing the absolute poorest people uh, against the middle class. And it's not like the poorest people became rich. Like everybody was downgraded or, or killed, but at the, at, the very, at the very least downgraded. And then, of course, historically, you know, it developed into what it developed. But now people who are feeling the least respected and sometimes objectively so because obviously there have been a lot of problems in you know in western civilization in america i mean they're not imaginary problems at all some of them like many of them are not imaginary at all but the people who are weaponizing those problems at a very high level i do not think they're trying to fix anything they're just trying to lower the standards like for example if the middle class people can no longer say that their standards are valid, that they want personal liberty or some normal economic prosperity, like, you know, standard American level, then if they're punished for saying that, then everybody, everybody's standards go down and hello, the great reset and, you know, poverty. So I think that there are a lot of underwater currents happening and it's a combination of people who have been feeling disrespected for valid reasons and especially there's no real respect in society for anybody even people who are comfortable they're comfortable oftentimes doing what they hate and it's a rat race and they're not happy so respect is not there so the higher-ups the political marketers the corporate structures at the highest level are doing the social engineering efforts where the real problem of disrespect and the real problem of poverty is used as a weapon against, say, the middle class and some kind of a notion that freedom is to be expected. It was a long-winded rant, but hopefully it made sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I, I love the long-winded rants. It means that uh, it gives me plenty of material to, to <laughs> ask questions based on. Um, but sticking to the sticking to the trauma thing i was just reading an essay this morning it was it was a reflection um that uh someone wrote on their experience with psychedelics specifically ayahuasca um and what they wrote was all of us carry trauma usually unprocessed and these wounds lead us to recreate the trauma in others i'm wondering how you having been traumatized in many different ways um, and, and probably in ways that you don't even realize, uh, do, I mean, well, I guess, first of all, do you carry that same urge to recreate the trauma and others that you've experienced? And if so, how do you resist it? And if not, why do you think not? That is a very good Amazing question, actually. And I have another long-winded story 
to respond. So one of the things that I realized through, well, my own life, because I guess own experience is the most important experience to every human being, and I'm not, not, not an exception. But I realized that, say, the generation of my grandparents in the Soviet Union, they were born right after the revolution, essentially, and they were brainwashed up the wazoo. They were really trained to love the state. They were, and I mean sincerely, sincerely, not like a fake thing. They were really trained into that ideology, and they were trained to believe that their own parents were, you know, like backward, maybe outdated. So, and they were so dedicated to the talking points of the Soviet ideology, sincerely so, that they were almost, how should I say, like sacrificing their own children's spiritual wholesomeness to those talking points of the state. And so the generation of my parents grew up kind of, I don't know, neglected is not the right word, but, you know, grandparents, that, that, that entire generation, they lived very harsh lives. They went through a war. They, they, they had really hard lives. They were extremely brave people. They worked hard. They were poor. And they were so focused on survival that they, you know, their children were growing up like, you know, like weeds in the, in the backyard. And they, and they were also, the, my parents' generation had to march to the drama of the slogans. They were probably less passionate about it than my grandparents' generation. And again, I'm, I'm generalizing, obviously, but they still had to march to the drum. But there was post-World War poverty. They were traumatized in their own way tremendously. And so at that time, as they were growing up, the idea that it's kind of good to have some kind of prosperity, that idea became accepted and they wanted that prosperity and they didn't have it. And so by the time my generation was around, which is again, and about the ruins of the Soviet Union, we were, you know, we left all those Soviet slogans out of the room. It was maybe like people a little bit older than me, but like I enjoyed the fruit of it. And I was resentful tremendously of all the misery that they were all trying to give me. Like they were trying to convince me that like, I should please other people, that I should be worried, that I should, like relaxation was a no-no. And that was a massive collective emotion. And that's what I ran away from, from that gloom. And I, I didn't, I couldn't explain it this way at the time. I just knew that something was really bothering me, that something was really not working well with what I wanted to be. And I ran away from it. And now I'm realizing that that was essentially collective trauma that one generation gave to another generation that that other generation was trying to give to mine. And I just rebelled. I didn't want it. And of course, having come to America, trying to run away from it, I started repeating similar patterns, like I got in the abusive relationship and all that. And I just worked really, really hard to just toss all the trauma away, like really, really hard. It took me years and conscious effort. And also I think that I saw in my own experience, in my own subjective experience, that not dealing with it was so dangerous that I would not like, I felt like I would not have survived if I didn't deal with it. Like, it was so difficult and so hard. 
that I absolutely had to do something to just leave it behind. And so I did. So I think, and again, this is my subjective opinion, hopefully correct, that I am not trying to give it to anybody else because I made a conscious effort to end the cycle, like with, you know, my own experience. So I specifically try to help others to, like, wake up to their own internal strengths. I mean, I just feel an internal inclination to do that. But it took a lot of work, like a lot, a lot, a lot of work. And it took tremendously painful experiences to uh, essentially put me in a situation where I had no choice. I had to either disappear as a human being and who I am and my, my, you know, what I want to do in life, or I had to really fight for it. So I chose to fight for it because I had no choice. And in the end, I think, you know, it gave me strength and clarity again. That's beautiful. Wow. Um, so oh, thank sw- you. Switching gears a little bit, uh, who, who or what are the robots that you're fighting in the title of your, of your Substack blog? Well, originally the meaning that I put into that was a big tech because I have been observing and researching what they were trying to do for years now. But also it is the algorithmic principle as such, as such because you know, machines are machines, but then human beings are not meant to mold their behavior after algorithms and robots. And when we do, we pay a price. It's not pretty. And rulers throughout centuries have been trying to essentially separate people from their natural power, from nature, and from their natural mechanisms of balance, and replace that natural power with some kind of talking points, whether it's specific institutional religion and their talking points or uh, state ideology or uh, there's so many ways to replace normal internal natural strength with uh, with talking points. It really, it really struck me. I'm sorry to interrupt you. It really struck me that um, a, a few months ago, we were all talking about follow the science and you know, it was science, 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 everything's science-based lockdown because of science and wear a mask because of science. And then at some point that stopped being the slogan. It started being follow the rules. The science started becoming something like ethics or morals. Did you notice that? Oh, absolutely. And I'm so mad that the principle of science has been replaced with nonsense because science as such, it's, it's a very good method. I mean, nobody in their right mind would deny the method of science. It's you test something, you compare the physical reality results <laughs> yeah. to your theory. And if it checks, then you move on and you never refuse to argue and good science, you know, in peaceful times without any corruption, there could be, three scientists explaining this, the same thing in completely different ways and being honest about it. And they can talk and eventually, you know, some kind of a semblance of truth will show up. But the idea that science is dogma and there's only one way of doing science, so what, that is insane. That is insulting to intellect and heart. So what, 
but obviously it's not innocent. I mean, it is happening because there's a certain goal and financial and economic. And so it's not necessarily coincidental on a high level. Then on a low level, it's inertia and corruption and confusion and fear and abuse and all those things. But absolutely, I agree with you. So that moral aspect, well, science, science became a religion and it's not real science. It's just hashtag science. So, yeah, it's tragic. It's absolutely tragic. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, you, so you, your website, uh, you've got two sections. You've got Tessa Fights Robots, which is your writing, and you've got Tessa Makes Love, which is your art. And I would love to, I would love to know more about your music and where that comes from. Oh, well, that comes from the inside. And, oh, thank you. I, I've been doing music ever since I was a kid, like a small kid. And I did classical piano and I cannot imagine my life without music. This is my, like my first love and I have been doing music all my life. So uh, the name Tessa Makes Love came from, I guess, my general goal in life. I like to create harmony. I like I like it when people get along. I like it when people talk and, you know, sort things out in a benevolent way generally. And that that band name very well describes what I want to do in life. So, and I don't know, to me, fighting robots and making love, philosophically speaking, is kind of the same thing. Yeah. Because I think that we're born with love. And it's a tremendously important and huge part of who we are. And the algorithmic thinking, it essentially, it masks the internal love. And it almost, like, it puts it to sleep for sometimes for years, sometimes for, you know, most of one's life. But when those algorithms are removed, somehow then the love comes to the surface. And I do believe that it ultimately drives everything and I do believe that ultimately it's going to I don't want to say save us because that's that's a very solemn way to talk about things but maybe make the world better maybe help us heal it's blowing my mind how uh so are you are you familiar with integral theory or integral thinking not really Okay, uh, I'll. Uh, I don't want to get too much into it, but everything that you're saying and everything that you write, and maybe this is why. Maybe this is why <laughs> I like it so much, um, just because I've been I've been studying it a little bit, and actually here coming up on the podcast, we're going to have an integral theorist uh, um, as a guest. Uh, but so, like what you just said, where you said um, making love and fighting robots is basically the same thing. And in this most recent post on your, on your Substack, you said uh, communism for broken people is really just a super monopolistic capitalism for broken people with a more con- convoluted distribution model and clever marketing campaign. Like pretty much everything that we, everything that we value and everything that we oppose really can be seen as like two sides of the same coin almost. Does that, does that ring true for you? It does. Well, the idea about communism and capitalism, it just, it it was my recent realization that 
communism is monopolistic capitalism. Somebody told me that a few years ago and I didn't yeah. quite understand it like on a sensory level, but I think now I really got to this understanding. But this whole argument about capitalism versus communism has been annoying me for years because I've lived under both systems and I have personal subjective, again, but still personal firsthand experience of seeing that neither system actually respects the human spirit mm-hmm. and they have both abused nature in similar ways and people in slightly different ways, but ultimately still abuse them. And when people attach the passion of hating an enemy to an ism, I think it gets dangerous and it also gets a little silly because nobody solves any problems this way. And then, of course, when people argue about isms, then whoever benefits from divide and conquer, they, they jump in it, they use it, and they actually they add fuel to the, to, to, to the argument. So, and also, it is subjectively mind-blowing to me because I grew up specifically at a time and place where it has been officially declared that all those communist slogans are fake, that what Bolsheviks doing was like essentially lying and destruction and bloodshed. And all those Soviet apparatchiks, they were lame at best, sometimes evil, but at the very least lame. And the dissidents were right. And underground artists were heroes and the dissidents were heroes. So that was my you know, coming of age, my, my, my formative years, it was all that. And after that has been decided in my life, you know, as I was starting to think as a teenager, and all of a sudden, those ideas that have been left out of the room when I was a child, they are coming back as something new and progressive. And I'm just like this can't be real. I mean, this is just a cartoon. Because, for example, for example, one of my first poems that I wrote was about Lenin, and I did it sincerely. Nobody forced me, and I talked to Lenin in my head as kind of an imaginary friend when I felt like adults didn't understand me. I was feeling lonely, and I had to complain to somebody. There was no like there was no religion, so the religion was those children's stories about Lenin, how great he was. And I've lived through that. And I know that it was no good, that it was fake. So when all those things are coming back because people associate that, okay, capitalism is disrespect. Therefore, socialism or communism is respect. And of course, what Americans call socialism is not socialism. It's like it's an entirely different kind of warmth. And I don't even get into the interleft divisions. I don't even understand them, and I don't want to understand them because it seems like there's a gazillion different subdivisions and people say, I'm this, but not that. And those people are stupid and my people are smart. I don't get into that. I don't want to deal with it. I mean, I like everybody as human beings and isms I'm not helping. But coming back to what you said, absolutely, I do agree. I think... uh... Earlier, you you said uh, that it's both dangerous and silly. You did that again. The <laughs> the identifying identifying two things that seem opposed. Um, but you, I mean, something can certainly be you know terrifying and absurd. 
Um, and in fact, absurdity might lead to terror. Uh, I, I, like I said, it's blowing my mind. Just, uh, I'm, I'm loving this conversation. Um, one thing that I'm noticing also talking to you, you do, when I ask you a question, um, you tell a story almost always either a, a personal subjective story, or you talk about the history. Um, when someone asks me a question, I tend to get conceptual. I don't get personal. Uh, I talk about the philo- <laughs> the philosophy or the or the you know whatever. Um, I'm wondering if that's the difference between like an artist's mind and someone who's not particularly right brained. I don't really know, or is it left brained? I can never remember. But uh, well, anyway, um, has has that. Has, <laughs> Has that always been, has that always been the way that you, that you relate to the world through story? I, I don't know. Naturally, probably, yes. But I, like, trust me, I can do a conceptual conversation. I can do it well. I can do, like, this scholastic analysis up the wazoo. But, and I've been trained to do that. Like, I, like, I went to good schools and all that. But at some point, I went through the internal process where I realized that, in my case, and it, it is absolutely different for everybody, and I think that any approach can work. But in my case, I have discovered by observation that when people talk about concepts, they kind of feed their brain and the ego a lot. And for example, like I did that a lot talking about concepts when things were not dangerous, like when dystopian things were not dangerous. And, you know, this conversation over a glass of wine, you probably recognize it. Like, you know, oh, this trend is so horrible. And we're really looking at the dystopia. And here's why. And here are all the things that can happen. Oh, how interesting. But then when I was talking like that, it was kind of, it's an art form in itself. But because it feeds more into the ego, including the ego of the person who is talking and also the people who are listening and by virtue of relating are perceiving themselves as smarter. It kind of creates this salon environment versus stories that are emotional. They, again, they move something internally and it creates a different kind of momentum. I don't know. Like I'm trying to explain really complicated things in my head. I don't know if it makes sense at all. Like, does it, does it, does it, does it make sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, and, and <laughs> it's, <laughs> well, uh, again, again, it's that, it's that, it's that, it's that, it's that, um, it's that rejection of dualism, maybe. Maybe that's what it is. You you seem to see the world, like I said earlier, holistically. Like it's not either or. Everything almost is is a both and concept. And I mean, you know, your Substack writing is is not narrative. It's not telling stories. It's it's pretty analytical, um, which is why when we're talking one on one, I wasn't expecting I wasn't expecting to get you know stories for every single question. I love it. Oh, thank you. But you know, like another thing that actually answering your question in a simpler way, uh, I think that, and I've been thinking about this concept and actually doing doing things with it, like performance-wise and events-wise. Uh, see, the, uh, when people are attached to ideas, then explaining something to them that contradicts the idea 
is essentially a dead end. Like not going to happen. Like you're not going to convince anybody with ideas if they are married to their own idea. However, if in response somebody talks about themselves, then it creates a certain like tiny little window or door where you, I mean, you can't hate a person for their own emotional experience, right? So if, say, you have this political belief and I have the opposite political belief, then it's pretty hard to talk conceptually because we will just yell at each other because, you know, you believe in this set of talking points and I believe in that set of talking points. But if you tell a story about yourself, that is a life story, emotional story, and I tell a story about myself, then there's some chance of connecting. And when people connect, there's some hope for, you know, development and healing. That, that's my conceptual theory about that. Yeah, it's, well, it's really tough to turn your trauma around on someone else when all you're doing is telling a story. Right. Well, it, no, 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 you, it, it can be done. But yeah. <laughs> Believe <laughs> me, I know. <laughs> we could just sit here and compare war wounds all day and, and one of us would come out on top eventually. Um, well, so uh, you do have this personal note at the end of your most recent post. Um, you're, you're doing some fundraising and it looks like your mom's sick. Would you like to, would you like to talk about that for a second or is it too personal? Well, it is, I, I, I wrote it kind of squeezing myself, like squeezing the words out of myself. I really, like, I like to, you know, the, the Russian strength. I talk, hate talking about my problems. So yeah. if people go to my website, to my Substack, which is tessa.substack.com, and they look at my latest post, then they'll be able to see what's happening. And okay. I would appreciate help. Without, without a doubt. And I have observed, I mean, such beauty. I mean, people are responding to me and trying to help and like sending me donations. And I'm actually overwhelmed with the feeling of like love and joy. And I'm discovering such a huge family, such amazing people. And I want mm -hmm. to extend my gratitude. Well, like, awesome. Humanity is alive. Humanity is definitely alive. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and especially right now where, uh, you know, we're, we're up against so much. Um, it's, it's really good to see. It's really good to see people. We're, we're seeing like a reshifting, I think of, uh, of allegiances and alliances and things like that. And it seems like lots and lots of good is coming out of a really kind of dark era. Um, well, thank you so much, Tessa. I'm going to, I'll be sure to link to, I'll be sure to link to your most recent post along with your, Great reset post, which was where, which is where you know everyone has kind of come to come to know you. I think. Um, is there anything else that you'd like me to link to, your Twitter or anything? Uh, thank you. Well, my Twitter is Tessa Makes Love, and I there's an article that could be useful to people. I wrote the article about the pandemic, which is called I think Pandemic Meets Panopticon, Panopticon Meets Pandemic, and it is very thorough meaning that if anybody is looking for a source they can send their friends they disagree with, it is written in a way that is not uh, abrasive. And it has about a million links, including to studies. So, and it covers about every area of pandemic response. So that, that could be useful. If, if you agree, then it could be a useful resource for people. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Tessa. Uh, I will hopefully talk to you soon. This has been a lot of fun.
Thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. That was a, that was a great conversation. Thank you. Great. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks again to Tessa for joining me today. And thank you for tuning in for one more episode of Blackbird. If you're not already subscribed, please make sure you do that. If you're listening on iTunes, hit the subscribe button. The best place to subscribe, of course, is on Substack, blackbird.substack.com. You can sign up for the free option or the paid option. The paid option will give you the added benefit of knowing that you're supporting me and my work, along with get you some premium content once I start producing that in higher volume. In addition to every episode of this show, you will also get any written content that I produce. So I look forward to seeing you on the Substack roll. Uh, and please also make sure that you're sharing it with your friends. I appreciate the publicity. And with that, this is another episode on the books. And I'll see you on the next one. Until then, live free.